Welcome back to the horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. We are here with a monster today. <laughs> like, let's let's be straight up about it from the start. I'm afraid of how long this is going to be already. <laughs> The movie itself is two and a half hours, which for any kind of movie these days in any genre is long. But the time that we have spent with this movie (laughs) outside of its (laughs) runtime, I would say at least eight to 10 hours on my part, at least. Yeah, you really took this one and you were like mine. (laughs) In the same way that Elise took Mother and took the burden of Mother (laughs) and ingested it and just like let it happen. This was my mother. Yeah, and coincidentally, it deals with a lot of themes of motherhood. Yeah. That's crazy. You're right. Huh. We're talking 2018's remake of Suspiria, which we did the original way back when, the 1977 Dario Argento masterpiece. This is so different. It is very different. Even the ways it continues, the very aesthetic themes are very different. You know, the original Suspiria dealt with a lot of bright colors, artistic shots. And while this, of course, still has some color play, especially with red, you know, it's not quite that same exaggerated feeling that Dario Argento has, but still really interesting. Yeah, so getting into its conception, at two hours and 32 minutes, this remake of Suspiria is nearly an hour longer than the original. (laughs) There's so much here. And this is directed by a big fan of Dario Argento, Luca Guadagnino. He is known for Call Me By Your Name, which is a beautiful film, not horror, but great. And Bones and All, which has yet to come out, but we're really excited about because it's cannibal themed. (gasps) The one with Timothy Chalamet. Oh my, yes. Okay. That's him. And obviously, these two movies are very different. So when approaching the remake, Guadagnino called 2018 Suspiria a cover version of the 1977 original. He said, that's how I'm approaching it, an homage to the incredible, powerful emotion I felt when I saw it. So not necessarily trying to cover the plot or lack thereof beat by beat or even like the stylistic elements, but more so an homage to the feeling, like that confusion, that disorientation, which I do think he did pretty well. Mm Mm-hmm. It's making me think of our conversation about Carrie in the Prom Queens episode, Mm -hmm. how the remake of Carrie really was beat by beat by beat. And you and I had talked about, wouldn't it have been cool if... I feel like this movie makes really neat changes. You can still see, of course, the origins of it in the original film. But again, yeah, those differences, there's a lot of cool stuff happening here. And some of those differences include the music, too. So we all know and love the Goblin score when it comes to the original Suspiria, that very disorienting, chanty, sharp-sounding score. But this music score was actually the debut score by Radiohead lead singer Tom York. Oh, my. Which Radiohead's a prolific band. They're just awesome. And he took inspiration from German rock music created around the time of the film setting, which is 1977, which is when the original came out. I have a question. There were some moments in the film that had a lot of really gorgeous orchestral music Is that him? Yeah. Wow. Because there is a part that almost brought me to tears. Is it the farmhouse scene? Yes. Yes. Okay. When he is, I was like, am I watching 2004's Atonement or 2007? Like, am I watching like Kira Knightley in a movie right now? Like, why am I emotional at this score right now? Suspiriorum (laughs) by Tom York is going to be on my Spotify wrapped. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I've listened to that piano score and his singing so many times. Wow. It's beautiful. And it's so different from Goblin. And I love Goblin. Like, Mm -hmm. I love that score. But this is so much more atmospheric. It's so different. 
And something else that's different is that there's actually dancing in this movie. (laughs) Who would have thought that at a ballet academy, there would be dancing? Because that's something we had said in the original, like we see men dancing. We don't even really see ballerinas dancing. So this movie was choreographed by Damien Jalet. Guadagnino hired him after seeing a live performance of Jalet's Les Medusées, which I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's French. Sorry. But that translates to The Bewitched. Incidentally, Jalet had drawn inspiration from Argento's Suspiria when choreographing Les Medusées. Jalet subsequently used Les Medusées as the basis for the film's six-minute climactic dance sequence called Volk, which is incredible. Very incredible. So good. It's wow. so good. Ooh, this is some good pre-plot trivia right here. Oh, I did my damn okay. best. <laughs> The Suspiria Ensemble received the Robert Altman Award from the Independent Spirit Awards, so the entire cast just for doing an awesome job. However, this movie's considered a box office bust because it cost roughly $20 million to shoot and only grossed about $8 million worldwide. That is a bummer. I mean, listen, one of our favorite movies from this podcast was also a box office bust. Jennifer's, Jennifer's Body! body. <laughs> Perhaps not on as large of a scale. Mm-hmm. And obviously there were a lot more players in this one, but still, I really enjoyed this. There's a lot to say about it and there's a lot to take in, but I do like this a lot. That is also interesting considering that recently this has been the most requested movie for us to do. We've right. gotten an email or two about it. It had been mentioned before in some of the Instagram polls. So despite that flop on paper, people are talking about it. So talking about the major players, we can go over some of our ladies. This movie's entirely ladies, and I can't go through every single one because there are so many people in this movie. But <laughs> some of the major players, we have Susie, who is played by Dakota Johnson. She's known for the social network, the Fifty Shades franchise, and a movie called Wounds. She underwent two years of ballet training to prepare her for this role. And something I thought was interesting, Natalie Portman and Isabel Furman, <laughs> Esther herself, were considered for the role before it ultimately went to her. It would have been so different if either one of those women were cast. Not necessarily in a good or bad way, but I mean, especially Isabel Furman. I think it would have been so different if she was the lead role. And I think Natalie Portman with Black Swan, like, she just needs to claim Black Swan. Like, we didn't need her in that many more, like, crazy ballet movies. So I'm glad that she has her role there, at least. So we also have the character of Sarah, who is played by Mia Goth. She is like a horror powerhouse right now. She's in X. She's in Pearl. She's in a movie called Marabone, which I liked a lot. And then also A Cure for Wellness. We have Madame Blanc, who is played by Tilda Swinton. Now she's in fucking like everything, but (laughs) we know her from the Chronicles of Narnia franchise as the White Witch. Yeah, the White Witch. That's correct. And I will be scared of her for the rest of my life because because of that. that. (laughs) I can't look at a jelly-filled donut the same. (laughs) Also, we need to talk about Kevin, which is so hard to watch. She does so well. And that movie is so viscerally uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to watch it again after I've watched it. Maybe we'll cover it one day, but oh my God, it's so hard to watch. But besides Madame Blanc, she actually also plays two other roles in this movie, Dr. Joseph Klemperer and Mother Helena Marcos. So we'll talk about that when we get there. I did not know that going into this movie, and it was a pleasant surprise (laughs) to learn these things. And Tilda won Best Supporting Actress at the Fangoria and Fright Meter Awards for her roles in this film. And then we've mentioned her before. We'll mention her again We have Chloe Grace Moretz in this movie. She plays a small but pivotal role in Patricia. 
And something else that's fun about this movie is it's broken down into six narrative acts, which I kind of liked. It kind of shepherded you from like one mood to the other very succinctly, where I think the original did that with the presence of color and score and camera movements. This really just broke it down more classically, which I enjoyed. So we'll be talking about that once it gets there. Something that plays heavy in this movie is a lot of historical events, which I think was a challenge for both of us being like, what the actual fuck was going on? So I found an article called A German History Primer for the Confused Suspiria Viewer (laughs) by Nate Jones, which I was like, thank you very much. All right, so let's get into this article. Nate Jones writes, Suspiria takes place in Berlin in 1977, and boy, does it ever. (laughs) Luca Guadagnino's new film is very self-consciously not just about witches and modern dance, it's also tied to the events of the German autumn of that year, when the ghosts of the nation's past erupted in an unrelenting stream of political violence. After the events of World War II, though the Allied powers did hold Nazi leadership accountable for crimes against humanity at the Nuremberg trials, as Tony Jutt writes in Postwar, eradicating lower-level Nazis from public life soon proved, quote, not practical. Germany, after the war, contained 8 million former Nazis, many in professions the Allies relied upon to rebuild a functioning society like doctors, judges, and civil servants. And, Nazi or not, ordinary Germans often resisted reckoning with the violence carried out in their name. The result was a society where actual Nazis and actual Nazi beliefs were both still widespread. After what Luca Guadagnino calls 20 years of obliviousness, the Nazi years were introduced into German school curricula in the early 60s, just in time to enter the minds of youths who would be on the front lines of the decade's subsequent cultural shifts. In Germany, the late 60s generation gap was even starker than in other Western countries, as young people born during or after the war woke up to the fact that their parents' generation had perpetrated one of history's greatest monstrosities. This led to the formation of the RAF, the Red Army Faction. In Suspiria, this was the group that Chloe Grace Moretz's character supposedly fell in with. The RAF was a Marxist terror group that emerged out of the more militant fringes of West German counterculture. Though the RAF received assistance from the East German government, the regime generally considered them unruly dilettantes. When we see the RAF in Suspiria, most of their original leaders are in jail. After a string of robberies and bombings, Bader, Enslin, and Meinhof were all arrested in 1972, but a second generation carried on in their absence. With the exception of Meinhof, who had been found dead in her car in 1976, the leaders were convicted on several murder and terrorism charges and sentenced to life in prison in 1977, kicking off a string of events now known as the German Autumn. The term refers to a series of kidnappings and other violence the second generation of the RAF undertook in order to force the release of Bader, Enslin, and their compatriots. The first kidnapping of banker Jurgen Ponto went wrong as RAF members shot Ponto to death after an apparent struggle. Then, in September, the group abducted Hans Martin Schleyer, president of the West Germans Employers Association and a former second lieutenant in the SS. When the government refused to negotiate, the RAF raised the stakes. On October 13th, an allied Palestinian organization hijacked a Lufthansa flight and threatened to blow up the plane unless the prisoners were released. The plane ended up in Mogadishu, where the West German government pretended to accede to the demands, but instead sent a commando squad who stormed the plane, killed the hijackers, and freed the hostages. 
After the failure of the hijacking, Bader, Enslin, and others were found dead in their cells, though, as with Meinhof's death, the official ruling of suicide was challenged by RAF supporters. Schleyer was murdered the next day, his body left in a car trunk in France. So you're probably hearing this being like, why the fuck do I care? But something you have to realize about Suspiria is we see a lot of news coverage that is world building of what the hell is happening in Berlin at this time. And we're probably not going to touch on that a lot throughout our plot summary, just because there is so much. And if we had to stop every time a news coverage came on or a radio (laughs) broadcast said this, all of this to say two important things. Susie is an American coming into a very divided Berlin and she's very unaware of what is going on. There's a lot of conversation where characters like Sarah are being like, you really don't understand like what's going on or Madame Blanc will call her out and be like, you don't understand what we just went through as a nation. Like you're an American, you are on the other side, you're on the different side of this war, right? So not only is Berlin divided, but the dance academy is very divided that's going to be playing into some of the themes. And it's also the idea that the people of Berlin are experiencing either a very intense sense of national guilt. And this is pretty exemplified by our character, Dr. Kemperer's guilt over losing his wife, we come to find out, and him being a Holocaust survivor, or a sense of shamelessness to continue abusing power and to continue dominating those vulnerable. So, for example, Schleier, who was a very real person, could be drawn as a parallel to the coven who continues to prey on the dancer's youth and vitality. Mm, mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, the leader, Schleier, he was a Nazi. He was a high-ranking Nazi, but he was able to go back to his life in public service doing all of these things. And these ally forces are like, no, like, we need to hold these people accountable. And this generation of dancers are now just becoming aware of, like, what their parents did mm. or what happened to their family as a result of that. So just wanted to give some context to that because there's a lot going on and we can't unpack all of it, but that's what you got to know about what's happening in Berlin in 1977. Very divided. Nazism is still very much an ideology that's at play here. So Elise had mentioned there's a lot of differences when it comes to the use of color and sound earlier when talking about this. So to achieve the 1970s style effect, the film still continues to use slow motion and numerous camera zooms typical of the period, including the recurrent use of snap zooms, which I loved. I loved seeing the camera move and do all these crazy things. Like its predecessor, Suspiria was shot on 35mm film stock, but in order to help distinguish the 2018 from the 1977, Guadagnino chose not to use the vibrant color palette of the original, going for a more winterish and bleak style. The decision not to use primary colors was made in accordance of the film's bleak setting amidst Germany's verge of civil war, which I think makes sense. And then talking about the score, which Elise and I both loved, Tom York said, there's a way of repeating in music that can hypnotize. I kept thinking to myself that it's a form of making spells. So when I was working in my studio, I was making spells because everything is really repetitive and changing in tone. And Tom York actually won multiple awards at several film award festivals for his score or the track Suspirium, which again, going on my Spotify rap. (laughs) Awesome. So I guess last thing we want to cover before we get into the plot is touching on the three mothers, Mother Tenebrarum, Mother Lacrimarum, and Mother Suspiriorum. Okay, so here's some lore. This is from a mixture of IMDB and an article, Understanding Suspiria, Who Are the Three Mothers and How Will It Affect the Remake by Jeff Ewing. Patricia's diary refers to three mothers, and again, Patricia is a character we'll meet very soon. Mother Suspiriorum, Mother of Sighs, Mother Tanibrarum, Mother of Darkness, and Mother Lacrimarum, Mother of Tears. 
These are the three witches from Dario Argento's Three Mothers trilogy, with each witch appearing in an installment, Suspiriorum in the original Suspiria, 1977, Tenebrarum in Inferno, 1980, and then Lacrimarum in Mother of Tears, 2007. Argento developed the Three Mothers trilogy from inspiration he found in Thomas de Quincey's Suspiria de Profundis, a book of psychological fantasy essays. In Argento's trilogy, each of the mothers is an ancient witch with enough power to affect events on a world scale, and each has been manipulating events while masking their existence. The story of the three mothers begins in the 11th century when three sisters created the art of witchcraft. Ooh, did we talk about this in the first I week? don't think we did, which is why, why I included it. This is so sexy. Okay, <laughs> they achieved wealth and power, traveling the world, and leaving death in their wake. Okay. So the three mothers are supposed to be related, which I think is really interesting going into our ending. Mm-hmm. And also, just like we get themes of motherhood here, we also have themes of sisterhood as well. So I like that the lore is very much rooted in both of those things. It makes sense, I dare say. Yes, we wanted to really build the world because if you go into this blind not having watched the first Suspiria (laughs) or not knowing anything about Berlin or not knowing anything about the mothers, you're probably going to be like, wait, I missed something. And we both felt this watching movies. Like, wait, wait, did I miss a scene? Like all this kind of stuff because it's supposed to be disorienting. So we wanted to try to make it as contextualized as possible. Yes. So that when we go into the plot, you're not missing anything. Yeah, that is so true because we're dealing with the fact that this is a remake The lore of these three witches and the historical context of Germany in the 70s. So there really are so many things going on in this movie. And the fact that Tilda Swinton plays three people. (laughs) (laughs) Which, add that on the list. Let's get the fuck into it. All right, let's go. How do we open? Six acts set in a divided Berlin is one of the first little pop-ups we get, leading us into Act 1, titled 1977. We begin with a frenzied Patricia, aka Chloe Grace Moretz, arriving at her psychologist's office, Joseph. He asks her to leave because apparently she was not expected. He is waiting for another patient, but she makes herself comfortable and then begins talking. And we can see right away that she is anything but at ease. She, again, is frenzied, concerned. At first, she seems completely incomprehensible. We can't quite follow what she's trying to say. But then she says, I was right. They are witches. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. She reflects on needing to warn Sarah, who is a student at the school she goes to. We haven't met her yet, but she seems to be the only girl that Patricia cares about. And she mentions another girl named Olga, who also has her suspicions about the witches. Meanwhile, the therapist has gotten up to close the curtains. And as he does so, Patricia continues talking and says that the witches have been underground since the war. She says, quote, they took my hair, they took my urine, they took my eyes. Oh my gosh. Okay. She continues moving around the apartment in fear. Then someone enters. It seems like it's the therapist's kind of like secretary, but since his office is in his house, she's also kind of the maid or the head of the house. Like, you know, she'll get your tea, but she's also like your appointments here. She's kind of like a secretary who's also kind of like a personal assistant. Yes. Yes. So she comes in, letting him know his other appointment has arrived. Patricia quickly says, they'll hollow me out and eat my cunt on a plate. Starting out strong. (laughs) Before she runs out, obviously leaving the doctor very confused. 
But after she goes, he indicates to his next patient he's ready to see him, and the scene ends. And through some of this dialogue, we are introduced to the character of Mother Marcos, who seems to be the antagonist that she's afraid of. She says, Mother Marcos, oh, she wants to get inside of me. I can feel her. I thought I wanted it, but I just let it happen. That's something about some of these witchcraft movies, the idea of it's inside me, I can feel it inside me. Even talking about St. Maud, right? The idea that there is another being that is inside of your body and can see what you're thinking or can control your movement. Very possession-like, very creepy, but yes. Patricia makes her exit, and then we are changing setting very rapidly to a farmhouse. We are zooming in on a framed cross stitch that says a mother is a woman who can take the place of all others, but whose place no one else can take. It's cute, but also in this context, it's feeling very sinister. It's threatening. (laughs) It's a little threatening. Like, try me. Threatening me, mom. (laughs) Try me, bitch. So we have some pannings over some religious iconography, a lot of farmhouse things. And this is where we get the fucking score, the beautiful (laughs) pianos. It's very entrancing piano score over ragged breaths. It sounds like death rattles or somebody's kind of near the end of their life. We see a family sitting beside a dying woman. They're bathing her with rags. A pastor arrives and we, again, are zooming in on this woman wheezing lifelessly. And then we switch settings again. We see our girl Susie arriving in a train station. We see a Suspiria sign behind her in the distance, which I thought was very nice. Mm. You can tell that she's like discombobulated. She's dropping her money. She's dropping her map. She doesn't know where she is. She is walking through the street in the rain, very similar to the original, arrives at the school. She steps inside and we're seeing from her perspective, there's a cool pan up shot showing her perception, a lot of fast zooms on faces. So again, proving that she feels overwhelmed and that this place is much bigger or much more vast than she expected it to be. She's greeted by Miss Tanner, who tells her, listen, this isn't a good time. I know you're expected, but you can't audition right now. But Susie stretches anyway and is like breathing intensely against this Marcos jumbled poster behind her. Very anxious, but she's going ahead with her audition for the Dance Academy anyway. Elsewhere in the Academy, we see Madame Blanc for the first time. She is leading dance classes in another area of the Academy. And we can see that as Susie is preparing for an audition, she perks up sensing this energy change, right? As if she knows somebody has arrived that would be of interest to her. And so she leaves then and goes to see Susie audition. Miss Tanner said something about Blanc being in a good mood. So like, I think that there was something about, yes, she was auditioning, but yes, she was also very lucky that she could get a spot today. Well, I think it was Susie being like, where's Madame Blanc? Mm. Like, isn't she going to watch my audition? Mm. And that's when Tanner is like, you're lucky because you have no formal training and you're here. So shut the fuck show, up. Show, shut the fuck up, you stupid American. Yes, yes, absolutely. But yeah, LeBlanc arrives. And something I thought was interesting too was before she gets there, I think Miss Tanner or one of the other women in the room says that it's LeBlanc's preference for Susie to audition without music, which interesting. So Susie begins, Blanc arrives, and we can tell that Blanc is very intrigued with this performance. She likes what she sees. And this is, of course, Tilda Swinton in all of her actress glory, showing with barely perceptible changes in expression, of course, her changing feelings as her character, which is really neat to see. And yeah, Susie finds out that she makes it in the Academy. So good for her. And she finds out that she can actually stay at the Academy because she is taking the place of someone who went missing. Mm. And who is that person? 
Patricia. Patricia's missing. Yeah, not great. So she leaves and goes to stay in like a hostel for the night because they are readying the room. And Susie greets Sarah, played by Mia Goth, who comes the next day to help her with her things. They talk about Madame Blanc. Sarah is praising Madame Blanc, saying that she kept the company alive throughout the war. They hear banging outside, and it's clear that a bomb went off. And Sarah starts to begin to tell Susie about the war, saying, like, you know nothing about all of this, do you? Susie didn't realize it was as bad in Berlin. Like, you could tell that Susie has romanticized Berlin up until this point. And Sarah's like, you really have no idea of, like, what we're all going through. So they decide to hunker down for the night because obviously a bomb just went off and they're not going to walk back to the dance academy, which takes us into Act 2, Palaces of Tears. Oh my. We begin with a close-up of Joseph in bed, one of the many times he will be woven into this story until he begins to play a more central part again. But this is also showing us, I think, that he is very much still concerned with Patricia's last visit. He is unsettled and up-thinking. And then we hear dialogue about a vote taking place within the Dance Academy. We hear someone saying that each person must say the name of the person they're voting for. We're not really sure what they're voting for. It's something about whoever remains in power. So we hear Marcos, Milius, Blanc, Marcus, this, that, this. And I wrote, it's giving very much cell block tango. Yes. Popsicle squish. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cicero. Yes. Seriously, it is. And whoever Marcos is, which is a name we've heard a couple times and seen a couple times, wins by three, which three I think might be a significant number just in literature. So she gets to stay in charge. That's not our girl Blanc, who was, I would say, a front runner, but she lost anyway. And whoever Marcos is gets to stay in charge. Yeah, they all sit around the table and start talking about Patricia and how like she wasn't strong enough. There's a voice that says, mother wants to try next. We have to make sure the ritual will work on the next girl we choose. Maybe Sarah. It was right to send her to collect the American girl. She feels good here. Loved. So we're beginning to see these elements of manipulation. Okay, like this girl feels safe here. Let's exploit her or let's use her for this ritual. (laughs) Okay. Like she feels safe. Excellent. Let's just totally ruin her life. This is where we get some background on Joseph. He's reading a paper on the train. You could tell he's heading to this cottage out into the woods, away from his home in the city. He's walking through towns, stations, wood paths, arrives at a little cottage, and he puts his hand over a wood carving on the side of a cottage that says A plus W with a heart around it. And then he sits in the yard with a book, and we hear a woman's voice talking. So we're beginning to think like, oh, he lost somebody. Like, this sucks. But then that is cut with Susie arriving at the academy with her belongings the next day. Sarah shows her to her room, their next door neighbors. And then we're cut back to Joseph back in his office and his personal assistant of sorts is talking about the war. And she says, before the war, Germany had the strongest women like your wife, Anka. Wasn't she strong? Okay, we're realizing that Anka is his wife. Anka is missing and or dead, not around. And Joseph is left there by himself. Back at school, Blanc kisses everyone good morning (laughs) on the cheek. Okay. And she introduces Susie to the rest of the company with glowing reviews. 
I remember the original Suspiria. Everyone was so overtly sinister, but I love how Blanc in this movie, you could see how like as a young woman, you would look up to her so much, like her confidence, her stature, the way that she speaks and celebrates the girls and really comes at them with this approach of, I want to help you. Let's improve your craft. I like how it was more believable to see her as this like successful dance teacher in this movie. She's introducing Susie and she lets everyone know that Olga will now dance Patricia's part because Patricia is gone and Sarah will then step up and dance Olga's part. Susie can just watch and she can jump in whenever she is ready. So practice commences. Susie is on the ground watching. And as Blanc is trying to work with Olga to improve whatever she's doing, Olga gets upset and she lashes out at Blanc for being a liar. She talks about Patricia being missing. She doesn't believe that Blanc doesn't know where Patricia is. Madame Blanc is saying, you know, she went off with that group. It's not my fault that she wanted to go off with that terrorist group, that she'd rather make bombs than dance, this, that, or the other thing. But Olga is not having it. And she says to call her a cab because she's getting out of this, quote, box of rabies, which I was like, I love that. Box of rabies? Yeah, get out of there. And she calls them witches as she storms out of the room. So a cutting interaction with Olga. This is where I write, Susie volunteers to take the lead like the American she is. <laughs> That's something that, that I loved a lot about Dakota Johnson's characterization of Susie is that she is acting the way any clueless American would act. Where it's like, well, I can do it. Like, of course I can do it. Mm. I don't need the context. I don't need to earn it. Like, of course I deserve it. All that kind of stuff. But she says she has studied this dance. She feels ready for it. And Tanner's like, okay, but you dance the part alone first. Oh, this scene. Oh my God. Okay. Oh shit. This is the most gruesome scene in the movie and you're not expecting it because it's early on. And it's gruesome in a way that I don't even have anything to compare this to based on the movies we've watched for this podcast. No. It's different. It's so different. It goes on so long and every time you think it's about over, it's not over. (laughs) Oh shit. Okay, tell us because you'll do a better job. You always do a better job with moments like this. I didn't think you'd love talking about this, so (laughs) So I'm so happy to carry this burden for us. (laughs) So music starts as Olga is gathering her things to leave. She's hearing laughter. Some teachers approach her and kind of stare into her as almost like it's hypnotic. So she begins crying, and she doesn't understand why she's crying, but her vision's getting flooded. She is walking down into the basement, I guess just trying to get away. She feels very overwhelmed while other teachers are mimicking her behavior, perhaps a bewitchment of sorts. And she's wiping her eyes. She goes into a practice room and she's locked in this practice room. And this is just a room full of mirrors and a dance floor. So she is locked in there. She can't get out. I wrote very good acting because she looks despaired. Like she looks like she's desperate. She's like, what the hell is happening to me? I'm so confused. It almost feels like she's being marionetted there. She doesn't Mm. understand why she's going down there. She feels very compelled to go down there. And we also see there's a point where I don't know this witch's name. She's another one with big, thick, round, fun glasses. When we see Olga blinking tears away, losing her vision, we also see that witch blinking tears away, losing her vision as if, like you said, she is controlling Olga's sight. Also, we see Blanc pause Susie in her dance, her first attempt at this dance, telling her to relax, center herself, 
Blanc touches her hands and touches her feet. And we can see almost like barely perceptible glowing light coming from the places where Blanc touched her body. So again, something is being set up here and then it continues (laughs) and and then it continues and it won't stop. It won't stop. (laughs) And I found it very interesting that Blanc tells Susie, if you feel ill, just stop. And I'm like, why would she feel ill? (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm like, why would you feel ill? But maybe because because she knows she's doing something. She knows she's doing something shady. Yeah, She's casting some kind of spell or doing something weird. So as Susie begins to dance, Olga is being forced to dance in tandem with Susie. Her movements are being compelled. But when Olga is dancing, because she is resisting her movement and because she is not controlling and can't anticipate what her body is doing, her bones are breaking. Her organs are rupturing. Olga is being twisted like a pretzel. Susie's nailing it. She's up top and she's hitting these moves and she's contorting her body in the ways that looks artistic. But Olga, because she is resisting and because she can't tell what's happening, she's being battered. She urinates on herself. She vomits. She's being thrown into walls. She's being twisted and contorting. Every time Susie breathes, Olga is screaming. It's really like as above, so below, almost. Like it's very much like she's on the first floor in hell and then she's in heaven hitting all of these dance moves, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, what the fuck? How are they filming this? Like I'm just, (laughs) because it's so hard to look at because every time you think it's over, Olga just keeps getting snapped and moved. She's alive and conscious and gurgling and Mm. spitting and is just left on the floor, just so twisted. Her stomach is like on the side of her ribs. It looks nasty. Susie eventually collapses, like she does feel ill. And Blanc says, it'll pass. You're not the first dancer to lose the room. But Susie's confused. She's like, I wasn't dizzy. I don't know why I collapsed, but she's sent to her room to rest. Olga is not dead, which I don't know fucking how. Yeah. She's not dead. I thought for sure that she was dead, but she's not. It's witchcraft. It's witchcraft. (laughs) Some trivia about this. The now infamous dance hall of mirror scene where Olga's body twists and contorts in excruciating pain synchronized with Susie's dancing had close to zero CGI, according to Luca Guadagnino. Elena Falkina, who plays Olga, is a trained contortionist Woo! and ballet dancer in addition to having hypermobility, having very flexible joints. What? She performed all of these stunts herself. But she was given a prosthetic arm, leg, broken ribs, and protruding dental cast that were created for her to allow her to appear as though her bones, limbs, abdomen, and jaw were being crushed and broken while her actual arm and leg were removed from footage and post-production. I already knew that that scene was so good and so believable, like, within the context of this world, but that gives me so much more appreciation for that. She did all of that. She did all of that. Wow. Like, obviously, she wasn't hurting herself. Of course. But she did all of the moves and was throwing her body around because she's trained her body to be able to do all these things. It's so fucking cool. And the movement, it's so severe, too. Like, it's, wow. I'm almost tempted to go back, and I don't always say this. (laughs) I'm almost tempted to go back and watch it, knowing that. Of course, yeah, because she does have the prosthetic jaw, which is another really hard thing to look at. Wow. Okay. Wow, wow, wow. We return to Olga in a little bit. Still, we're focusing on Susie. I kept writing Suze. I was like, we're in Suze's room. (laughs) (laughs) She sits on the toilet to pee. And then as she urinates, we see it looks as if the urine is being collected somewhere, which is a little bit weird. But I'm thinking back to Patricia's words in the beginning of the movie. And she, meanwhile, has a flashback to her childhood. 
she came from like a Mennonite upbringing. She was in a schoolhouse learning about the United States, but she was writing Berlin in her notebook and romanticizing Berlin. Back to Joseph. He is reviewing his notes at his desk from Patricia's meeting. And again, we're seeing he's concerned about this. He's thinking about what's going on. Meanwhile, back at the school, the witches gather around Olga's twisted body. One of them says, don't hurt Olga. And I'm like, bitch, I think we're (laughs) past that. They are way fucking past that. But yes, this is when we find out she's still alive. Each of the witches has a super chic hook. (laughs) I was like, Captain Hook would really like to reinvent his image. And they take it, I don't know, from their pockets or whatever the fuck and like, hook it into Ogo's arm, her leg, her this, her that. And they pick her up and drag her away into a secret room behind the mirrored wall. Which like, you made us watch this whole scene with Olga and now you're gonna make us watch all of these hooks go into her body. That was tough. I know, I kept calling them scythes because I thought they were like, almost like a reaper scythe or something oh. like that. Well, she's not put out of her misery. No, she's not. She's certainly not put out of her misery. <laughs> nope. Nope. Meanwhile, Joseph calls the authorities and reports Patricia missing. He doesn't say her name, but he says he might have somebody who's missing. We can assume that it is Patricia. Then we get a scene with Madame Blanc and we hear her talking to some of the coven. She says she couldn't know what she was doing. She carried more of our intention than we expected. We also let ourselves get angry with Olga. The girl is a natural. I could feel it. Like Patricia, only clean somehow. She may be more of what we're looking for, even more than Sarah. Mm. So she's saying that they did not mean for Olga to get killed, but Susie was so powerful. Mm. They wanted to punish Olga, but not in the way that she ended up how she ended up. But Susie interrupts, the rest of the coven leaves so that it's just Madame Blanc. And <laughs> Madame Blanc's like, you don't look better or are you always this pale? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But mm-hmm. we get like, a little bit of a time lapse where Madame Blanc is asking Susie about her Mennonite upbringing. Susie's begrudgingly telling her about it. She's like, well, what's your journey? How'd you get here? And Susie says, I went to New York City. I felt like I had to see you perform. So lots of elements of fate. And then again, we're getting into some weird body things. Blanc asks, when you were dancing, what did it feel like inside of your body? It felt like what it must feel like to fuck. You mean to fuck a man? No, I was thinking of an animal. Yeah, what the fuck? And then Blanc says, you looked totally trails off. And then cuts back to, I'm going to ask Caroline to work on jumps with you. So it looks like Blanc is going to like continue this conversation. I'm also, you're picking up on like- There's sexual tension. There's There's absolutely sexual tension. So much sexual tension. So much sexual tension. Also, I wrote, this scene is reminding me of Taylor Swift's song, Question. Because Blog is like, can I ask you a question? And it's like this whole thing. I'm like, let's set this dialogue to that song. (laughs) Like, I feel like you really (laughs) can ask you a question. (laughs) When you were dancing, what did it feel like? Was it, did it feel like what it must feel like? (laughs) Just like, so strange. But anyway, I was thinking of T-Swift in this moment. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And it's true because there's a split diopter shot that's really good of Blanc wringing her hands and Susie is like reacting to her words and she's gasping. Like she's, like getting very short of breath because Blanc is saying to her, Olga made Volk seem like such heavy lifting. She never understood the heart of it. She lacked conviction. I'm relieved she's gone. Thank you for your help with that. And then she like puts her hands over her, like almost blessing her. There's a lot of weird stuff going on between the two of them. 
Blanc uses touch very much as a manipulative tool, but not even in a way where like she's always casting spells because there is that scene earlier where we can see based on the glow that Blanc obviously is doing some witchy stuff, but especially in this moment where it's so coded with this like sexual tension, like it just feels so like Blanc knows what she's doing. So almost grooming too. This young protege, this older experienced dancer who this young woman has looked up to. It's like riveting, but it's also very uncomfortable. And witchcraft has like nothing to do with this scene. Right. And I think it's important because Patricia had even used the word grooming. Mm. Oh, Blanc groomed me for Marcos, like all this mm. type of things. And I think it's really good because of the scene that comes afterwards where we have a really intimate moment between Susie and Sarah that has no power dynamic. Yes. And it's so intimate and sweet. It is. That it really shows the starkness between Madame Blanc and yes, her grooming versus the actual sisterhood between Sarah and Susie. Yes. So they're in Susie's room. Yeah, Sarah is in the room next door to Susie. So they spend time together. And Susie tells Sarah right away the news that she has been cast as the protagonist in the dance. She's so excited. But Sarah is immediately concerned. She's thinking about what Olga said about Patricia in the dance hall earlier during the blow up and says it was true, right? That there is shady stuff going on. And Sarah asks Susie to do something with her, but we don't know what it is quite yet, but they pinky promise about it, which is so sweet. Sarah doesn't mistrust the coven yet. She's worried about Patricia Mm -hmm. and she, on behalf of Patricia, wants to look into it. But she even says like, Patricia didn't trust the matrons and I don't understand why. Yeah. So we're still in a moment of contemplation, but not commitment, because I think that's something that they do differently from the original. Sarah is always suspicious in the beginning in the original, but Sarah takes a little more time to come around to it in this movie. So that night while Susie sleeps, she has weird dreams about past abuse, like somebody trying to burn her hand with an iron, memories from arriving at the dance academy, lots of touch, right? Whether it's violent touch of the iron or remembering the touch of Madame Blanc and a child's hand drawing the letter A in blood on the wall. Did you take that to mean anything? Well... I read this afterwards and it made sense in retrospect because we have like heavy breathing. We see a light at the end of the tunnel. We hear a glass breaking. We see a child being pulled out of a closet and then a sick woman screaming. From what the plot summary said, Susie was masturbating and her mom caught her and punished her. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Why the A? Is that supposed to be like adulterer? Is this giving like Hester Prince Scarlet Letter? Scarlet Letter, yeah. I okay. That I didn't know, but that does make a lot of sense if that's the context that we're working within. That's the only thing I could think of, but I didn't know if that would make sense. I mean, I don't know what Mennonite people do to punish people who do ungodly well, things. Quote, this quote. mother chose to burn her daughter's hand with an iron. Not a good moment for anybody. <laughs> for anybody. Okay, and then that concludes Act 2. We are now in Act 3, titled Borrowing. We see some detectives approach the school. Vendegast lets them in. They ask for Marcos. They say Patricia's missing. And then once Marcos isn't available, they ask for Blanc and Vendegast pretends to be Blanc. Meanwhile, Susie and Sarah are sneaking downstairs. I don't know if this is at night or early in the morning. Like, I can't tell what time of day it is. I was like, wear quieter shoes. At least they brought this back from the original where Susie's (laughs) click clacking around. And her fucking high heels, and so are these two. I'm like, take your shoes off. <laughs> um, act like you're doing something sneaky. Ugh. So Sarah and Susie sneak into an office, and they're looking through drawers. They're looking for Patricia and Olga's files, but they're missing. Mm-hmm. 
So Susie hears some distant laughter while Sarah continues to look and she sneaks into the next room to see the dance teachers giggle as the detective stands still entranced. And I wrote, as they play with his tools. <laughs> yeah, he's got his pants underwear down and he is just there with like a shirt on, but with his dick out. Winnie the Poohing it. Winnie the Poohing it. And they're just giggling and laughing and it's so uncomfortable, but also so obviously there's some witchcraft going on. Like there's something going on that this man is just standing there letting this happen. But Susie does not seem at all concerned. She seems also entertained by it, but she doesn't seem worried, despite the fact that this is so... Assaulty. I mean, they're taking the hooks and like Mm -hmm. playing with his dick with it. It's uncomfortable, but she does not seem uncomfortable at all. I know, like you're not going to rush back and tell Sarah that. Like that'd be the first thing out of my mouth. I was like, oh my God, there's a guy with his pants down. Yeah. And they're playing with his dick. What the fuck? But no, she's like, (laughs) and just just leaves. Oh, those silly women. (laughs) I was like, what is going on? They go, we're at a rehearsal, they're stretching. Blanc enters, she's like, there's no mirrors, no music today. We're talking about a new piece, a piece about rebirths, the inevitable pull they exert in our efforts to escape them. She just tells Susie to improv. And this is where we get to see some more sexual things out of, <laughs> out of Susie. She's breathing heavily. And I wrote, she's dancing like she's topping somebody. On all four, she's flipping her hair, she's rolling her shoulders, she's hip dipping, she's back arching, she's moaning, and Blanc is looking at her, looking up Tanner like, oh, fuck. As this is happening, either on the other side of the wall or coming up from the floor, we see a witchy hand flatten against it as if she's feeling Susie's movement. Yes, it's giving like ooey gooey spooky hand through the floor. This moment, I guess like Susie's control over her body, her autonomy, her power. This leads into the next moment where Blanc and another one of the women chat. I did not do a good job writing down the other witch's names. But she and the other witch chat, she says that Marcos wants Susie. Blanc is like, yes, Susie is the one, but let me make sure that she is ready first. So I guess there's still some practice that needs to go into making sure Susie is ready for whatever Marcos wants her for. Later, Susie and Sarah are together. She asks Sarah if she felt anything during the dance. And Sarah says no and looks at Susie like she's a little nuts. But later, Susie walks into town with the rest of her classmates and sees the teachers out. The teachers are out. The students are out, like not together, but doing their own thing at night around town. However, there's a narration that's overlaying the scene that's telling us that Blanc and the other teachers are attempting to appear normal to further fool Susie into thinking that they are normal. But that night, Susie dreams again, and she ends up screaming, waking up in a night terror. Sarah runs to her to calm her down. Susie screams, I know who I am. And apparently, we know this from Sarah and some of the other girls that come in to see what's going on, that all the girls have nightmares. It's just a part of being at the school. (laughs) Nice. They're like, Marco's company special. Let me know if she needs a Valium. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, who is that girl? She's got it going on. Sarah then gets into bed with Susie, and she tells her that they're sisters now. They're so tender. I love it. It's so sweet. And again, like this idea of you wake up from your nightmares and your friend is there to protect you. Like, it really is so tender. And again, like you said, is this a scene you were talking about? Void of the power dynamic? Yeah. Yeah. And it is refreshing. Honestly, with all of the discomfort that's being sowed so far, it's nice to see this moment of relief for both girls. 
Especially since this nightmare is so visceral, it's a lot of crazy images stitched together. We have scarred wrists, organs on the ground, earthworms, a naked woman in a chair, um, (laughs) masturbating with the hook, slitting of wrists, hair in drains, women covered in blood, men gagging on hair, the farmhouse, Susie sliding up the wall, colors emanating from her as she sleeps and moans as if she's working this through her. There's a lot to unpack. We're not going to unpack all of it. But I also really enjoyed that dinner scene with the witches because I like the idea that on the outside, you know, they're smoking and they're gossiping and they just look like these otherwise clueless women. But it's like the idea that people just tend to look at women like that, right? We're all like laughing and then we're doing this and we're doing that. But a lot of times there's so much subtle communication happening that is so unspoken and unsaid and we're saying things without having to say them. We're always communicating in this covert way where on the outside, you're like, oh, yeah, they're great. They're whatever. But there are so many looks being shared and there's so many asides happening and there's so much body language that we're reading where they're having this full discussion that no one can hear. And I like that that's almost like a superpower that women have when we communicate with each other. We can have a full conversation just through looks and gestures and doing all of these things and not have to say anything. It's giving vigilante shit by Taylor Swift. (laughs) (laughs) Or on our Midnight's era here. When she's like, ladies always rise above. Ladies know what people want. Mm. Someone sweet and kind and fun. (laughs) Ladies know, but you're right. They're communicating. They're scheming because that's what ladies have to do. Even the witches. You gotta be fitting in. You gotta be covert. We move on to act four, which is called Taking. Oh, I'm just realizing the antithesis of like borrowing, taking, we're escalating. And this is going to come in some things that I found after the fact when we do our wrap up, but the idea that they're doing motherhood backwards, like motherhood is all about giving. All witches do is take from youth. Like that's a whole tenet of witches and witchcraft is how much they take and how much they rely on youth. And it's almost like doing the opposite of what mothers are meant to do, Mm. you know? But we see Joseph, he goes into the police station to check up on Patricia's case. He sees a poster of her identifying her as a criminal, accusing her of being with the RAF. He goes to the detectives being like, well, did you check up on the coven over there? And (laughs) because they were bewitched, you know, the guys are like, they were fine. It was fine because obviously they're not remembering everything because they were hypnotized or whatever. Joseph's like, they are professional performers. Illusion is their craft. Mm. Joseph gets a lot of good one-liners in this. He does. He really does. Tells them about Patricia's suspicions of Marcos, but the police brush him off and is like, do you understand the kind of week we're having here, doctor? Which again is relaying to some of the coverage of the hijacking and all of these things going on. And this is where Joseph reveals that he's worked with the one cop before in 1943 when his wife went missing before the Russian charge. You know, you could tell the cop feels really guilty about not remembering that, but it's showing, again, that guilt that Joseph carries around with him all the time. Back at the academy, the girls are working on the new routine. Susie, this had been established previously, but I guess she's still having issues with her jumps. Thinking of now what you said, this is very, like, stereotypical American, like, trying to justify Changing the moves. Yes, or, like not taking the constructive criticism, but, you know, she mentions something about, oh, the ground, it's so much more appropriate for what we're going for here, blah, 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 blah. And Blanc responds, that's because you're mistaking physical weakness with artistic preference. (laughs) (laughs) But Susie still doesn't let it go. And she keeps trying to justify whatever as she continues making an argument about remaining close to the ground. But Blanc is like, no, we need you to get in the air. Is this when she practices and like gets better at jumping right away? 
Well, what happens is Blanc stares at Caroline, who is the best jumper, and then stares at Susie. And then Susie performs, does the leaps well, and then Caroline collapses, seizes, <gasps> and cries. So she transferred her power from Caroline over to Susie. What? I did not notice that exchange. Yeah, Blanc stares Caroline down. You can tell Caroline is scared. And then after Susie performs, Caroline collapses and seizes for no reason. You're like, what the fuck? It's because you took her power from her. Oh, my gosh, that makes so much more sense. Okay, so that explains that Susie does get better at her dances and that explains the seizure. Okay, okay. Hence taking. Act four, everyone. <laughs> Joseph arrives at the school, flags down Sarah and says that he's a friend of Patricia. They enter a diner. Sarah is hearing Joseph out about the things that Patricia had in her diary. Joseph hands Sarah the diary as a reference, and he says, The dance rehearsal, the political action, these two areas of Patricia's life were of equal importance. This is how transference happens, how delusion is made. Delusion is a lie that tells the truth. And Sarah tries to rebuke this, saying the company's a family. There's a lot of love there. And again, these one-liners from Joseph, love and manipulation. They share houses very often. They are frequent bedfellows. Mm. Oh, I didn't even write down the second part to that. That's making me think of the sexual tension we've been seeing. Uh-huh. How far does that go? It's metaphorical, and I feel like it's also literal. Joseph tells Sarah about hidden rooms that Patricia spoke of in their meetings, but Sarah isn't ready to get this information yet. She storms off upset because she feels really at home with the Academy. She says, thank you for caring for Patricia, but I hope you don't come again. Mm. Pretty much saying like, fuck off. I don't believe you. Again, the HIPAA violations. Or is it HIPAA or is it FERPA? No, it's HIPAA. FERPA is fucking great. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Wrong, wrong thing of things you can't share with people, but too many HIPAA violations to count. Anyway, I will say I never expected that the random therapist from the 1977 version would be taken and changed in this very... Such a pivotal character. (laughs) I'm here for it, but I will never forget the original therapist who (laughs) didn't give a fuck about what details about his patients he was sharing with strangers. I know. I know. That night, Sarah gets back to her room and notices that Susie hasn't returned yet. Meanwhile, we see that Susie is with Blanc. She is learning a dance, which we know, based on previous conversations, is aligning somehow with what the coven is planning. Apparently, it killed Patricia. Again, I think this is a moment where dialogue is playing over some scenes that we are watching. Yeah, Blanc tells Susie to empty herself, which is insidious knowing that Blanc is preparing Susie to take Marcos in. She's telling Susie empty herself so she can be in the image of the dance's creator so her work can live within you. I'm like, oh my God, this is such good writing because it just sounds like crazy teacher, right? Like hippie dippy shit, but it's really like (laughs) get rid of your sense of self so this person can come inside you essentially. So this person can take you over. It's like anybody who's ever told you to just like relax and clear your mind, you're now thinking about it. Like, did you have a personal vendetta against me? (laughs) What coven are you a part of? Because I'm thinking about it all differently now. I also really liked this line from Susie where Blanc asks, what do you want to be for this company? Do you want to be the eyes? Do you want to be the feet? And she's like, I want to be the hands. Oh. That just felt sexual to me. I don't know. I don't know. That is also really interesting thinking back to that woman who made Olga cry when she was trying to leave the studio. Like, is that what the other witches do too? Do they take on certain roles? Like, I'll be the eyes. I'll be the this. I'll be the that. But it's also like, if you think about dancing, I think about hands last. 
Mm. Like if you think about movement, you can obviously move your hands. But like when it comes to a dancer's power, like I don't think of hands, I think of hips, or I think of legs, Mm. or I think of feet or even emoting, but she wants to be this company's hands like she wants control, Mm. she wants power, she wants to like, write the story, whatever it may be. But this is where the woman with the glasses does some shit. The eyes. Yes. We are sitting back at that massive kitchen table where all of the coven members are sitting to eat. And they're chatting more about the situation, getting Susie ready. And then all of a sudden, Glasses stands up and kills herself by quickly stabbing herself with a kitchen knife that she just grabbed from like the bread board. And then of course, all the witches are in a frenzy. They're panicking. They don't understand what's going on. They whisk her away. But this, we know, is the woman that had a very instrumental role in Olga's torture. So what are we getting from this? Is she feeling guilty? Is she tired of playing this role? And I read this somewhere, I don't know where, but this was supposed to be framed as the first instances of free will she was able to exercise. That she was able to break control from Marcos or Blanc or whatever influence it was. And in an instance of free will, she was able to like escape and do that for herself so that she could be let go. But it is very dramatic and it is very sudden. This is intercut with a scene of Sarah waking up in a chair. She hears noises in the dark. It sounds like there's muffled noise coming from Susie's room. Sarah leaves the room and starts counting paces from her room in different directions. I got a little confused. I'm guessing she's looking for these hidden rooms. And I'm like, were these paces like in the diary, I'm guessing? I only knew what was going on because I saw the original movie. The original movie makes it much more clear why she's counting her paces. I can't remember why because it's been a while, but I don't remember questioning it like I was here because I was like, why do you need to count? Like, you know where you are already. But yes, she's, I guess, trying to figure out like where in proximity to her room these sounds are coming from. So she ends up finding the mirror studio where Olga was taken. She finds the secret room on the other side of the door. She sees weird art. She finds one of the hooks. She sees a portrait of Blanc and Marcos. So again... In a frame of like dry body fluid and hair. Did you notice that? No, I didn't notice that. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So troubling. This old like oil painting is in a frame of like hair and (laughs) God knows what else. Skin. Oh my gosh. You have to see it. It's so troubling. It's very, it does not feel good. (laughs) It's giving surprise bundle from Blair Witch Project outside of the tent. (laughs) Yes. Surprise bundle. You can make it into a picture frame. (laughs) (laughs) But she overhears the witches talking to each other saying we couldn't stop her. She was too fast with the knife talking obviously about the witch who killed herself. Sarah grabs the hook for protection and runs, runs away, but returns to Joseph with the hook. I keep writing scythe. It's not a scythe. It's a hook. Whatever. It doesn't (laughs) matter. A very sexy hook. A very sexy hook. (laughs) And this is where Joseph tells her about the three mothers. Patricia had said that Marcos claimed to be one of the three and that there was a rift between Blanc and Marcos camps within the dance academy. Sarah says, so they believe they're witches. And Joseph says, again, these quotes from Joseph. (laughs) I love him. Says, you can give someone your delusion, Sarah. That's religion. That was the Reich. The Reich had these things, insignia, esoteric rituals. These mothers, yeah, they could be code names for founding members with metaphoric histories. I don't know, but I do know that you're living with dangerous people. Mm. Who wrote this? Oh, my God. You know, I don't say this often, but I feel like I could watch this movie again. Wow. I wanted to watch it again where I wasn't psychoanalyzing it. Me too. I just want to kind of like let it I wanna roll. I want to experience it. I want to let it roll over me. Yeah. <laughs> Rewind. 
But he has her leave behind the hook, which again, I don't know if it was because I knew the whole time Tilda Swinton was playing this guy. I was so scared the whole time that he was actually like her character, but in some kind of disguise, like Mm -hmm. as a way to exploit dancers. So he has her leave her hook, which I was very scared about. And as she leaves her office, it looks like one of the witches is watching her. It looks like Miss Tanner, I think, is the one. That's the end of that. We're back at school. We have a group haircut. (laughs) I thought it was just Susie's hair. They cut Susie's hair for sure, but I didn't see the rest of the girls get their hair cut. Yeah, she goes from this really long waist length red hair to maybe just above boob length red hair. It's still pretty long. Yeah, I took that as like shedding the Mennonite and embracing the sexual. Right, yes. Mm -hmm. Because usually I look at cutting a woman's hair as like disrupting her power. I kind of look at that as a defeminization, but in this case, I think it brings Susie more into her power. You know, that's so interesting because I'm also thinking now about Patricia and in her opening scene, she talks about her hair being taken. And I'm wondering, maybe like a lot of people feel attachment to their hair. Is it a way to depersonalize you? Is it a way to unseat your security in yourself and your identity by changing your appearance via a haircut? But then again, you're right. Like, I feel like for somebody like Susie, that would almost be more empowering for her if we already know she's coming from a troubled past. And I think it is because it's intercut with a scene of her mother wheezing as a pastor presides over her. And her mother says, my daughter, my last one, she's my sin. She's what I smear on the world. Oh, could you imagine if your mom was like, (laughs) I smear you. Oh, my God. Also, did you notice that the mother's breathing was a lot like Marcus's breathing from the first movie? I didn't notice it, but it is. The first time we saw Susie's mom, I thought it was Marcos. Or I thought whoever that was was going to become Marcos. She had like the breathing that sounds like snoring. Well, maybe it's just hinting at Susie's identity. <laughs> We're gonna get there. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Blanc tells Susie to create space in her center as they rehearse, again, leaving room for whoever to enter her. My gosh. This is very sexual. Like creating space for somebody to fill or something to fill. Someone to enter you. Plus with Blanc's energy and their sexual tension. And these outfits are sexy. They are sexy. Oh my God, they're so good. So it's like the nude underwear, maybe a nude bra, and then just this fringed red overlay, I want to call it. I have to give it up for our sister pod, Quim City Productions, the horror show, because they did a dress up of this and they did it so fucking well. Like it looked so fucking good because it's like these hanging red pieces of fabric that all look so purposeful yet intricate. And I'm like, how the hell did you make it look that good? Like this is crazy. Yeah, they must have studied like the knots the layout. They're yeah. so good. They're so good. They are so They're so good at photo shoots. Every time they post a photo shoot, I'm like, how did you do it? How did you do it? We get a close up on Sarah realizing what's happening when Blanc tells Susie to leave room in her center. She's like, oh my God, Joseph is right. And she tries to corner Susie and says, you're making a kind of deal with them. How can you know what they're going to ask you in return? You just haven't seen the bill yet. This is Susie being like, nothing's wrong, dude everything's fine. I'm fine. Everything's good. All that kind of stuff. But it is the night of their performance. Joseph arrives. I guess he wants to see what's going on for himself. The girls are dressed in their red getups. Susie's painting her face white. And Sarah is missing. And we have entered act five in the Mutter house. Did I do a good job? I think so. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) AKA all the floors are darkness. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So cut to Sarah. We find out that she had arrived early to do her makeup and then promptly left, which is a little bit nerve wracking. It's getting close to showtime. Sarah, where are you? But we see Sarah. She has gone exploring again and maybe has gone farther into the mirrored corridors this time because everyone is obviously very occupied with the performance that's about to happen. And she finds Patricia, a moldering, barely alive, zombie-like Patricia. She's so scared to have found her, but so happy to have found her. And she's trying to give Patricia strength to stand up. Obviously, Patricia is very weak. God knows how long she's been down there. I don't even know how she's still alive. But as she is trying to get Patricia out of there, we can see that there are others in the room. There is another sort of zombie-esque dancer down there who is missing at least one foot, which doesn't align with any of the storylines we have seen so far. So who knows how long that dancer has been down there in this state And so Sarah is spooked by this dancer who seems to be coming at her. We don't know if it's malicious. It seems malicious. So she runs away and escapes to like a different corridor. Meanwhile, the dancers have had to go on without Sarah because she is still missing. So wait, that other dancer wasn't Olga? I don't think that other dancer was Olga. Oh, She was missing a foot. There were three. There was Patricia, somebody who we saw at the last minute that I was assuming was Olga, and the other one who was missing a foot. There was nothing about what happened to Olga, which made me think she was missing a foot. I don't know who it was. It doesn't matter. I kind of want to know who it was. (laughs) (laughs) You think it's Caroline? But like, why would she be missing a foot? Oh, yeah. Why would she be missing a foot? You're right. I don't know. I don't know. Yes. Dance is going on, intercut with Sarah downstairs in a corridor. All of a sudden, holes start opening up in the floor. (laughs) And Sarah steps in a hole. These holes are opening and closing. Oh my God. And then gives herself a compound fracture because of the way that she lands in one of these holes. She's like mid shin deep in this hole with a compound fracture screaming. And you just know watching this that she's totally screwed. It's almost like people are dropping ink blots on the floor because that's what it looks like, these holes opening up. Because it doesn't look like anything natural. It looks supernatural. It looks very labyrinth-esque. I don't know how else to describe it. Teachers approach her with this injury and they entrance her. She stands up very calm. And the next thing we see during the performance as Joseph is watching is that Sarah joins lifelessly. She's possessed. She continues the dance. Susie's dancing, but she's concerned. She's like, what the fuck? I wrote the dance is gorgeous and aggressive. This goes on for six minutes. So Mm -hmm. like we see a lot of dancing. The dance is called Volk, which translates to people. And again, like we hear this dialogue from Blanc earlier about how this is supposed to be like a representation of that guilt or a representation of what they've been through. So it's more of like the people Mm. of like the collective tragedy everybody's gone through. The dance ends, Sarah collapses and screams in pain. Joseph approaches, Susie's trying to comfort her. Sarah gives Joseph a panic look like, bro, you're right. Susie looks at Blanc suspiciously, and this is like the first time that we're starting to see that Susie is kind of getting what's going on here. Susie is whisked away. Joseph leaves the dance hall, obviously very concerned. And as he walks home, he's having his own flashbacks to his wife as a young woman, himself as a young man, and then visualizing maybe what his wife might look like today, years later. Back in her room, Susie wakes up from a weird dream again. Blanc comes in and the two are conversing, but Blanc is talking telepathically. 
And I wrote, is this a dream? And I was like, are they in love? Susie understands that the dance meant more than what it was. And she apologizes to Blanc for going off book. And she goes on to say, it's all a mess, isn't it? The one out there, the one in here, the one that's coming. Why is everyone so ready to think that the worst is over? I don't know how to describe it because we are framed to think that Susie is this clueless American for the majority of the movie. And now she seems very in the know about like how dire everything is. So is this, again, a hint that she's not herself anymore? There's some more dialogue that I missed, but Blanc is pretty much saying, oh, like you shouldn't have to choose. And Susie says, you don't want to make me choose because you love me. Yes. Okay, that's why I was like, are they in love? But then Blanc tells her, close your eyes, no more dreams tonight, I'll make sure of it. That seems very motherly to me, like, close Mm -hmm. your eyes, you'll be okay, like, all that kind of stuff. But now it's almost like Susie's the one kind of meeting Blanc where she is and trying to almost seduce her back. And this is where Blanc is beginning to realize that she's lost the power Mm. that she thought she had. And now she's like, oh my god, I care about you. It does feel like a power shift, for sure. And this takes us into Act 6, Suspiriorum. We're moving. We're moving. We're moving. We're almost there. We're almost there. Okay. So we are cutting shots between a rehearsal with Blanc and Susie. Well, rehearsal with Blanc and Susie's in her room seeming to be fantasizing or like thinking she's deep in thought, obviously based on the night before. Susie then goes out to eat, this time with the teachers? Or is it the whole company? It's the whole company. Okay, so everyone, teachers, students, Susie's out to eat. She sits at one head of the table, and Blanc sits on the other side of the table, which I thought was really interesting in regards to, again, ideas of power, power play, family roles, things like that. Meanwhile, Joseph has gone to a bridge. It is nighttime, by the way. And he is throwing a bundle of something off the bridge, including what looks like the spooky hook from Sarah, or it looks like he throws it off the bridge at least. When he gets home, Anka is there. And who's Anka? His wife that he's been searching for for like 30 fucking years. But who's Anka? The original Susie. Jessica Harper. Jessica Harper, baby. She's back. She is back. And she is there. And they are so happy to see each other. They, you know, haven't talked to each other in decades. And they hug and they talk about how they were separated. And she thought he was dead. And they kiss and they hug and they walk to the train station together and get on a train. And it's beautiful and gorgeous. I wrote, this is going to hurt. Because you, hurt. you know it's too good to be true. They walk some more. And where do they end up? Right in front of the dance hall. Joseph is then kidnapped. <laughs> yes. <laughs> teachers shriek and capture him. And he's being like, what the hell's going on? Da, da, da. And the <laughs> teachers say, what reason is there to pity you? You had years to get your wife out of Berlin before the arrests began. Mm. When women tell you the truth. You tell them they have delusions. Wowie. Insane. It is insane. And of course, obviously, the witches had materialized Anka out of the air, right? She is not there. They just lured Joseph back to the dance hall. It's a trap. So Susie returns alone from the dinner. I like that she's throwing her belongings everywhere on the ground like she owns the place. Like Mm. it's kind of showing like at home she feels and how much power she feels Mm. she has over it. She stands naked in front of the bed watching the light dance. And I wrote, okay, this light looks like the spinning wheel on a Mac. And I'm sorry, but it it looks like shit. Page is loading. Page is loading. But Susie (laughs) follows this light down into the catacombs. The door opens to a ceremony in place. 
all of the girls are entranced and in the shape of Patricia's drawings, like pentagram-esque style, they're all naked. Patricia, Olga, and Sarah are disemboweled and naked, and they're standing in like an altar shape. And then we have Marcos sitting by and watching, and you said, what did she look like? Marcos looks exactly like Roz from Monsters, Inc. (laughs) (laughs) Even the glasses, like she looks like Roz. But Tilda Swinton also plays Marcos, which I did not realize. You cannot even recognize her. No, she's indistinguishable. Also, Joseph is there. He is naked as well. Everyone's, there are no clothes to be found. Poor Joseph. He's crying. Everyone else has the courtesy of being in a trance, except for Joseph. Yes, he's crying. He's very much aware of, well, maybe not understanding, but aware that something awful is going on. And I thought this line was significant. He says, I remember I am innocent. Are there guilty men in Berlin? All of them, but I am not one of them. So again, talking about this national guilt, talking about this Nazism, all this kind of stuff, and how because he's a Holocaust survivor, he is a survivor of that. He has survivor's guilt. It's a different kind of guilt. But he is set up to be the witness. So the ceremony is about to take place, and they need somebody who wasn't involved in the company to serve as a witness, and that is why he is there. Susie has arrived. She's in a very sheer, long robe at the top of the stairs before she descends into the room. She says, I am ready, madame, to Marcos, and then turns to Blanc and says, you look afraid. Oh, again, the sexual tension is like, (laughs) and Blanc does look afraid. She is getting the sense that something is wrong and even tells Susie, you don't have to do this. Susie again insists that she's ready, but then Blanc tries to stop the ceremony. But Marcos throws some kind of magic that seems to sever the majority of, it's not her whole head, right? It's almost her entire head. Maybe there's like a centimeter left of attached skin, but from the back of Blanc's head. Nearly headless Nick from the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. That's correct. Nearly headless Nick, but from the back. Yes. Why from the back? I don't Maybe the idea that Marcos in the state that she's in now doesn't have as much power as she wants to have. So she doesn't have the full capability to kill backstabber or she's put so much of herself into Susie at this point Mm. and Susie's not the one doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming at this point that Blanc is dead. Very tragic. Then it's even more crazy. Marcos says to Susie, if you accept me, you must put down the woman who bore you. Think of that false mother now. Reject her. Expel her. You have the only mother you need here. Death to any other mother. Say it. Death to any other mother. (laughs) Crazy. Little does Marcos know she's signing her own death sentence. Mm -hmm. Because who emerges from even deeper bowels of this dance hall, but who I think might be the devil himself. Remember ooey gooey hands? I don't remember how, I don't know how to describe what this creature looks like. Okay, I haven't seen Stranger Things. Vecna? Yes, he looks like a mixture of... Vecna and Black Phillip. Yes! (laughs) Vecna and Black Phillip, and also, not him, who is from Insidious? Lipstick Face Demon? Lipstick Face. He has like the build of Lipstick Face Demon. Yeah. But the gooiness of Vecna. Yes. And the color of Black Phillip. Yes. Yes. 
Okay, who else are we supposed to think that is? It has to be the devil. Because like if witches are descendants of the devil or like made into witches by the devil, like could that they- be Tenebrarum or Lacrimarum? Like, I don't know. Because Maybe. you I don't know. I don't know who that is because the idea is that this person comes to take Marcos away. And Marcos turns to Susie, he's like, Who are you? <laughs> and Susie says, From whom were you anointed? Which of the three mothers? And Marcos begins weeping, and mm. she sounds very unsure of herself now. She's like, Mother Suspiriora? <laughs> and Susie says, I am she. So this entire fucking time, Susie has been Mother Suspiriorum and has just been waiting for the opportunity to come home. She pulls open her chest. Chestussy. <laughs> Chestussy. It's a chest vagina. It is a chest vagina. Also, like, it's giving, like, mother for Lawrence, which, again, this idea of a mother pulling open her chest. Mm -hmm. Interesting how that imagery has kind of existed across many planes. Filling the room with distorted screaming and crying, she whispers, I am the mother. And the devil (laughs) then goes around first, starting with Marcos, and kills Marcos. But I love how the devil is killing everybody. Oh, how is the devil killing everybody? Mouth kissing everybody. And then what happens to their heads? They explode. (laughs) What the fuck? This is where the part of the movie where we are fatigued and we're just like looking at all of this and taking it in and we're like, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, that makes, yep, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then the voiceover of the voting that had taken place early in the movie is playing. So we know that the devil is going around to all of the original Marcos supporters and killing those witches, which is such a power move. Meanwhile, Susie goes to Olga, Patricia, and Sarah and very benevolently is like, what do you wish? And they all ask to die. They're like, we're tired. We want to die. And she just takes their life force. It's beautiful, though. It I kind of love it because it's merciful. Like, you can yes. tell they've been kept alive for this ritual and they're holding their own intestines. Like, it's so crazy. They look so sick. Yeah. And she's like, sweet girl, what do you ask? It's very, yes. like, loving in the way that she does it. Again, this idea of maternal, it feels very motherly, like a mother coming, taking away pain, giving that healing presence. And so then they go. And then the devil finishes exploding all of the heads that he came to explode. Meanwhile, the naked dancers are just thrashing around the entire time. So it's very visceral. There's a lot of movement happening. It's very beautiful. It's very overwhelming. (laughs) And then cut to Joseph still laying on the ground. But then he is escorted out by one of the witches. And erases his memory, I think. Yes, I think his memory of the evening. Because then guess what? We have an epilogue. A fucking epilogue. A sliced up pear. The dancers wake up and they head into the big dance room where they're told that Blanc has left the company. I love that they all feel like shit and they just assume they're hungover. Like, I loved that. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. (laughs) Meanwhile, cleanup crew is happening downstairs in the basement. (laughs) Cleanup on aisle catacomb. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where we see that Blanc is still alive. She just kind of like puts her head back and like looks up and is living. I don't know what that means, but she's still alive. Back to Joseph, he's at home looking through some old papers called the Aryan Papers, again from the past. And his housekeeper comes in. She's very worried about him, but she leaves because Susie comes to visit. Which is weird because, I mean, these have been the two characters I think we've followed the most. And now they're in the same room for the first time, just the two of them. They've never interacted up until this point. Mm -mm. 
She goes on to say, I regret what my daughters did to you. I wasn't in a position to prevent it. I believe you deserve to know the truth. Anka actually died the year she went missing after she was captured. She was taken to a camp and she froze to death. But she says that she was surrounded by women and that she was loved and that her last thoughts were of you. And then she erases his memory, says, we need guilt, doctor. We need shame, but not yours. Mm. Joseph chokes, seizes, wakes with no memory. His assistant comes in to try to help him. And the last shot of the movie we see is a new family moving into his cottage with the heart carving painted over. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the movie. Oh my God. Woof this movie. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So got some goodies on the post plot as I okay. always do. <laughs> So this is on the idea of motherhood, the idea I talked about earlier, giving life and witchcraft is taking life, right? So this comes from an article called The Suspiria Remake Recognizes the Terrifying Power of Mothers by Hannah Ewens. She quotes Juan Nino saying, we're all the children of mothers. The mother and child relationship is important and it's so constitutional of who we are. Often, a female person is bound to a role and an identity. When we believe that mothers are good, there's much more complexity in the figure of the mother than what the entertainment and advertising industries want us to believe. Guadagnino mentions the great mothers of human history, including the totemic gods worshipped before patriarchal religions took hold. There's always the great mother, and as we know, there is also the terrible mother, and sometimes they are the same person, the same divinity. With coven power transferred to Susie, it's impossible to say where her talent ends and the influence of the mothers begin. Mothers aren't supposed to have favorites, but deep down they often do. And Madame Blanc's is Susie from the moment of her audition. She soon casts herself as the lead in the Academy's upcoming show, Volk, which she has written herself. An eternal truth is that mothers rarely avoid transferring their own failed ambitions and dreams onto their daughters. Simmering alongside that is the anxiety mothers occasionally have about being usurped by their daughters. Without revealing too much of the film's plot, there is only so much that Madame Blanc can teach Susie. Ooh. So the idea that, yeah, Blanc groomed her, but Susie then began to surpass her, and that's when Blanc starts to take that step back, which is interesting. That is very interesting. Now, this is also about motherhood, and this comes from the article, Empty Yourself So Her Work Can Live Within You, Mothers and Daughters in Suspiria 2018 by Amber Walker. And she writes, Suspiria 2018 has an interesting legacy with it being a remake of Dario Argento's 1977 horror classic, as well as it offering a complex and often chaotic depiction of witches. It brings forward ideas of matriarchy in a very insular way, choosing to mostly ignore Christianity or patriarchy as a potential antagonist of the film, typical of the genre, and instead choosing to focus on the way these women use their powers to harm one another in their pursuit of ultimate leadership. The world of witches is often represented as an inversion of the world of religious orthodoxy, and by prioritizing matriarchal power over that of God, Christianity was easily able to link evil with womanhood, and more specifically, motherhood. Barbara Creed even explains that a mother's curse was considered the worst spell to cast as it meant certain death. However, the men abused in this film often seem incidental in comparison to the grave amount of gore and death that the witches inflict on one another. Yeah, anyway. The film is about lineage, about mothers and daughters and how they learn from one another. At the beginning of the film, Madame Blanc acts as a surrogate mother to Susie, whose own mother recently died. Their connecting factor is dance, and the movement of Susie's body becoming an intense source of freedom for herself, a sensual escape from her previous life, which is only depicted briefly and is shown as repressive. 
She is able to lose herself, often appearing one-dimensional as she is not a person but a vessel for a mother's power. As Blanc explains, in order to dance her part in the best way, she must empty herself and allow the role to consume and live within her. In turn, Susie, without her knowledge, becomes a major source of physical and emotional pain for the other girls, the most gruesome example being Olga, whose body is twisted and torn apart as Susie dances for Blanc. She is the favorite daughter because of this. The other dancers are pushed aside so Susie can be groomed for her role. The film is able to convey a parasitic relationship between mother and daughter with a child foregoing bodily and mental autonomy to allow the parent to live out their fantasies of power in a younger body. This is then complicated by the ongoing opposition between the two mothers leading the dance company, Madame Blanc and Madame Marcos. Blanc is a physical presence moving amongst the girls to guide them in their dancing journey, whereas Marcos is the malevolent force haunting the building and only appearing at the end of the film as a rotting body, unable to live in the human world without acquiring the vessel power first. Their parenting skills, one of brute force and the other of gentle grooming, come from the same place and are both equally harmful. Even more, they are both ineffective, being trumped through the usurpation by the truly powerful one. Susie. Marcos and Blanc's power is shown to be false and are ultimately destroyed in the final scenes. Seeking to invert the power structures of the dance company as well as the rigid boundaries of the parent-child relationship, Susie is revealed as the true mother Suspiriorum. Through acquiring ultimate power, Susie is able to do the one thing neither mother was willing to do, which was be merciful. They instead kept many of the girls in an undead limbo where they were no longer of use to the company, but they weren't allowed to die either. Susie gives them this luxury, severing the abusive hold of Marcos and, to a lesser extent, Blanc had on them, letting them die and take with them the pain of not being the chosen one. Oh my. Away from the glaring eyes of the patriarchy, the characters in Suspiria are able to navigate the horrors of the true matriarchy and how this maps onto the supposedly natural roles of a parent and child. What Susie gains is not just leadership, but autonomy, gaining power that is hers and dismantling what was ultimately oppressive. The category of daughter is transformed into the mother because of choice as opposed to expectation, with Susie refusing to emulate the evils of the outside world and instead prioritizing the freedom that magic can bring. Wow. I loved that. I also love that. Because I feel like a lot of what we talk about on the podcast, which makes sense, is women's response to patriarchal wrongs. Yes. Right? Like, a lot of the times our antagonists are men, are of masculine nature. But it is true, like, even in the sense of Joseph's character not even being played by a man, like, there is no room in this movie for a male antagonist. It's all about the harm that women are inflicting on one another, which can be so much more to the bone by exploiting that motherhood, exploiting that grooming even the idea that we were talking about, like the demon is mouth kissing people to kill them. Yes. It's not chopping your head off and it's not using, you know, everything is a dick phallus to kill people. You're killing them in the most tender way, but it's with love and that makes it hurt more, you know? And the fact that this movie is so obviously situated in the reality of the patriarchy, it's like this little microcosm of a dance school run by women and we're seeing these women hurting women, but still existing in a patriarchy. It's creating this sense of even more deep hurt because these women still have to exist in a patriarchy. Like they still have to deal with the world around them as women. And on top of that, they're being preyed on by women or like surrogate mother figures, which like you said, it's so much more to the bone. It's so much more vulnerable. 
Like in the scenes you see Susie and Sarah declare their sisterhood and sleep in bed together to escape the nightmares, right? Like that scene played parallel with Olga being dislocated to death, right? It's so much more sinister because these women have to rely on one another and they can't even do that. Even the fact that Blanc was taking advantage of Susie's like sexual inexperience, mm. like that whole conversation of, oh, what it would feel like to fuck a man. And she was like, no, I was thinking of an animal, not in the sense that she was thinking about fucking an animal, in the sense that she was feeling like an animal, like this thing felt so naturalistic. But then that being, again, like split with her wringing her hands and Susie shuddering, that inexperience, like as much as Susie's talent is natural, she is so desperate for that level of connection. Even with Sarah, like it comes so easy, but like you could tell from the beginning, she's like, where's Blanc? Like she just wants this woman's praise. Despite, you know, Susie not knowing who she was, because I don't think Susie does not know who she is until that nightmare. Mm. She is not aware that she is Suspiriorum until she wakes up and is like, I know who I am. <laughs> right? You know, up until that point, and especially still in that point in the movie, she's just this dancer who wants someone to be proud of her. Yeah. That is really interesting seeing her evolution as well. You know, beginning as that inexperienced girl with a troubled past to Madame Suspiriorum. I do wish the transition was a little bit more obvious just for me, who misses some things sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I guess the power lying in her understanding is also a powerful choice as well. So this last part talks about Swinton playing Joseph. And this comes from the article Suspiria Review, A Masterpiece is Reborn by Britt Hayes. She writes, since Swinton is also playing Kemperer, the only men with speaking roles are a pair of largely useless detectives who are barely in the film <laughs> except to be ridiculed by a few of the women. <laughs> yes. True. It's almost too easy to dismiss Kemperer's arc as that of a man co-opting or commandeering a woman's narrative, but its intention is entirely the opposite. Kemperer carries survivor's guilt from sending his wife away during World War II, and he tries to absolve himself of that burden through psychoanalyzing away the very real pain of his female patient's experience, which often goes unseen. It's as if a woman's trauma isn't believable unless it's made wholly apparent through literal violence with credible witness, such as an old white man, the same type of man who has essentially dictated the worth of women, art, and commerce for far too long. Or, as Madame Vendegast explains after briefly indulging his fantasies of absolution, women tell you the truth and you tell them they're delusional. Mm. Which is why Kemperer is chosen to play the role of the witness to the film's gnarly, ritualistic climax. Oh my god. Here, all of the internalized trauma visited upon Patricia and Sarah and every other youthful, talented woman exploited for Marco's increasingly questionable artistic vision. <laughs> yeah is externalized in a brutal grand guignol destined, if not designed, to alienate most viewers. And like, I dig that because I think if Joseph was played by anybody else, you talk about Suspiria and you'd be like, oh, that poor guy, right? Mm. Like, because you do pity him. At no point do you think he holds enough power to really stop what's going on. During it, I was watching it and being like, I don't care about him. Like, I'm being sidetracked. Like, I do feel bad for him and I understand why he needs to be there and what you're priming him for. But the fact that he's played by Swinton still, like, centers it in this, listen, we're taking this patriarchy out of it. You are meant to pity him throughout the entire thing. But the fact that he's told enough women that they're delusional and that they are not to be believed is the reason that the coven has been able to hold their power for so long. Also, the fact that a woman is playing a man, I think is really something that we don't see too often. 
you had mentioned this earlier, like, you know, just coming off of Insidious and The Conjuring, where the spooky, conventionally ugly, scary woman was played by a man to somehow, like, beef up the scare factor that she possessed. And now getting the inverse of that is something to consider. It definitely has an effect. But that's Suspiria. <laughs> that is Suspiria. Wow. <laughs> we told you it was going to be a long one. It was a long one. We loved it, though. We did love it, though. And we hope we did it justice. I learned a lot. This is another one of those movies that I really came to have a greater appreciation for after the discussion. I did also like it the first time around, though, which is also pretty rare. <laughs> yeah, because the first Suspiria sacrifices a lot of plot for aesthetic. Yes. Where this, I feel like, almost sacrifices aesthetic for plot. Yes. So much so. I mean, it's a monster movie. Two hours and a half. But this isn't going to be the last witchy movie that we cover. No, we got one more. Yes. So last week, this week, and we're going to have one more coming at you, and we hope that you enjoy it. Please follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast and or email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com with any recommendations, comments, etc. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.